And speaking of uh, service, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, where the title of the message today is a call to service. And so if you get your Bibles and make your way to Acts chapter 6, that's where we find ourselves in our journey through the Acts of the Holy Spirit that we've been working on for several months now. And as you make your way that direction, let me just remind you that after the new church was born in Acts chapter 2, they received the power of the Holy Spirit, the coming upon of the Spirit. What we saw is then miracles beginning to take place. So uh, chapter 3, we see this amazing miracle, the lame man outside of the gate called beautiful uh, by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter tells the man to rise and walk, and he does that. And as he's able to walk, wouldn't you know that the next thing to happen is uh, persecution begins to take place. These leaders of the uh, Jewish religion, the Sanhedrin, come together. They want to challenge and come up against the apostles in the early church. And so they do that. They come up against these men. In fact, in chapter 4, we see all the apostles get thrown into jail for preaching the name of Jesus Christ. But before that takes place, what we find is they actually pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit. They don't ask for the persecution to stop. What they ask for is boldness in the face of the persecution. And so it's by the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them that they're able to have this kind of boldness. And so we looked at what a spirit-led life will actually produce, and it's a threefold. First, it produces unity in our life. The second thing of being led by the Spirit produces is and the third is then power. And there's a link between purity and power, which is kind of scary because oftentimes we don't get nearly as excited about purity as we do power in our lives. We want to be powerful, but we don't want to purge things out of our life. Now then in chapter 5, this early church is told again by the Sanhedrin, no longer teach the name of Jesus. In fact, to make sure they've reinforced this message, they give them a little bit of a beating. And the word in Greek is actually scourge them. That means they opened, uh, they took off their shirts and they laid 39 lashes across their back to reinforce their message, which is no longer teach and preach the name of Jesus. And I'll start in verse 42 of chapter 5, and here's how they responded. Uh, Daily in the temple... And in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. What do you do against men like that? And the answer is nothing. There is nothing that can be done to stop the gospel message when there is that kind of determination for these men. And so we see that they continued to both preach and teach. And understand that throughout the New Testament, there is this mediation between preaching and teaching. The word preaching just means to herald something or to declare something with emphasis. And so in this case, we see that they are preaching this to the lost, to the unbeliever. That's the one that they preach to. And so on the street corners or in the bars, if they had bars back then, all these places where these sinners were at, they are preaching. They're giving the good news, the gospel message to the unbelievers. But then when it came to their church services, their gatherings, what they were doing was teaching. This is for the believers to actually grow them in knowledge and in truth, to continue to see them built up in their lives. And so far too often what happens is we continue down the message of preaching, but what we're doing is we're preaching to the same believers every single week. We're giving them the same gospel message. They're wonderful truths. They're tremendous. But the issue is there's no growth in the body. The sheep never grow because they're continually feeding on the same food over and over again, In fact, this is why the writer of the Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, this is what he states, if I can get there. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. I lost Hebrews. There you go. Wouldn't you know it? Okay, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. This is what the writer says. He says, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles, the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those by reason of use have their senses exercised to, to discern both good and evil. And so the teaching was done to actually give them the meat of the word of God. So they would no longer be babes, but actually raised up grown up to full maturity so why we can tell the difference between good and evil 
How many of you would like to know the difference and how to be able to tell is something good or bad? Oftentimes I feel that way. And so what we're told by the writer of Hebrews, it's it's through the teaching of the word of God that actually gives us the ability to be able to understand, to discern good from evil. Go this way, go that way. And so it's all rooted and grounded here in a healthy diet. So if you want to be a healthy sheep, a healthy diet is necessary for that to happen. Now, back to the text at hand. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1, we read, In those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied. And so we see as we begin our text today that, again, this idea of multiplication. Last week I talked about uh, Bible math and what the Lord actually shows us uh, in mathematics, according to his word in the Bible. This doesn't play out for you uh, mathematical teachers in school, so don't get upset. This doesn't follow the order of operations. For a, for a formula, but what we see is subtraction actually leading to multiplication. What did we find at the beginning of chapter 5? But Ananias and Sapphira, these two people had come in with hypocrisy in their hearts, right? So as they come in with hypocrisy in their heart, they're actually struck dead, removed, subtracted from the early church. Now, it seems extreme, but what God knew and what we still know even to this day is the thing that will come up against the New Testament church more than anything else is hypocrisy. That hypocrisy will actually drive more people away than any other sin that takes place in our churches. And we know that to be true. And so what God does as this church is being born is he subtracts them from the scene. And so now they're able to actually multiply because this has been taken out of their a congregation. And so this is true for us corporately, and it's painful oftentimes that, that someone or a group of people might be subtracted, but understand it's done so that God can actually multiply a thing. And the same is also true for our own lives, by the way, that as God brings things up that we know we need to deal with, especially when we've been putting it off for years and years, what he's wanting us to do is subtract those things, to, to scrape off the dross, to remove the impurity from our lives so that we can have multiplication take place personally. Now, what is he wanting to multiply? Is it our bank accounts? Well, we get excited about that, right? <laughs> but what he's really wanting to multiply is the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. I don't know about you, but I could use a few more of those things in my life as well. And so what God wants us to do is deal with the impurity so that he can multiply in these areas of our life. Now then the end of verse 1, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And so uh, imagine this, this would never take place in church today, people complaining right nobody would ever complain about anything in church we're all so happy and so here's the early church and they are getting their first complaints from within and the complaints actually are centered around preferential treatment or discrimination and so what the apostles are going to do is they're going to deal with these things and we're going to see this through the next several verses of preferential treatment leading to priorities needing to be set leading to problem solving here in just a few minutes. But the preferential treatment that was at hand, if you look there, it was the Hebrews, or excuse me, the Hellenists were complaining about the Hebrews saying that their widows were being treated better than the Hellenistic Hebrews, or the Hellenistic widows, excuse me. And so what we know from Scripture is that we are called, we are commanded to take care of widows and orphans. That makes sense to all of us. But here in the food line, as they were taking care of the widows, Hebrew widows were being taken better care of Hellenist widows. Now, what does all that mean? Well, uh, for the Hebrews, these were the Orthodox Jewish families. These were the ones that followed the, the strict precepts of the law in their life and probably spoke the Hebrew language in their home. To be a Hellenist, though, is someone who speaks Greek as a language in your home place. And even though they were still Jewish by birthright, they spoke Greek in their house. So they were the more contemporary families. And so now you see you've got the Orthodox group and you've got the more liberal contemporary group, and they're beginning to butt heads. And at the root of all this is a complete cultural misunderstanding. Again, we'd never have any of those kind of things in our church. So this is the the root issue. And now, whether it was truly the issue, whether they were truly being discriminated against, we don't know. But the bottom line is, it was perceived. And so if it is perceived this way, we still have to deal with it because so often, so often perception becomes 
reality for people. Now, what Paul says referring to discrimination, he's very clear on this, and this is where we need to stand as a church. Chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 11, Paul boils us all down to this. He says, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is and is in all. So if you wonder uh, what and who we may discriminate against, the answer is no one. Because Christ is all and is in all. And if you're wondering what the Greek word for all is and how that translates, it's all. All means all in that place. And so Christ is no more alive in you than in me, regardless of uh, skin color, cultural background. None of these things have any matter to the Lord because Christ is everything and he is in everyone who accepts him. And so that's the place that we stand scripturally. So this is the issue at hand, the preferential treatment of these widows. Now then verse 2, then the 12, this is speaking of the apostles, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said to them, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God in serving tables. And so what the apostles say to these people that are bringing problems to them, that are murmuring, is they basically say, look, it is not desirable for us to leave the ministry that we've been given to go and serve tables. Now that can sound very harsh, but what the apostles are really trying to address is that they had been given by God priorities. That there was a priority for them, the 12, to actually read and learn and understand God's word so that they could turn around and explain it to the people. And so they had been given these specific priorities. It doesn't mean that the ladies were any less important. It just means for the apostles themselves, they weren't able to step away from their ministry, their first calling to go and serve uh, tables. And in fact, what we find is uh, the other part of their ministry that was important was prayer. We're going to see that here in verse 4 in just a minute. And, and really what they're doing is they begin to make a way now for others to step into a place of ministry. So look what they do with this problem solving. They make the issue very clear that they aren't going to be able to step away from God's word to serve tables. So in verse 3, therefore, brethren, seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to the to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And so what they did is they said, all right, you've come to us with an issue, and now, like any good leader, we're going to turn it back around on you. They tell these multitudes gathered, you go and select a group of men. Pick seven men out for us to then make the decision, are these men able to go and fulfill this ministry. It was important enough for them to take their time, but it was they needed them to be a part of the solution, not just complaining about the problem. And so many times this is us. We've got problems. We've got issues. We want to talk about them, but more often than not, what you're going to find is when God stirs up a problem or an issue in your heart, um, do you know who the fix is for that? You. <laughs> You're normally the fix for the problem that he's laid upon your heart. The burden that he's put on you, you're often the one that can actually address uh, those issues. Years ago, my wife did a ladies' Bible study by a woman named Rebecca Lyons. And while I don't normally uh, read and spend time in ladies' Bible studies, what I do is I steal their ideas and then I uh, pretend like they're my own. So I did this with this one, uh, but I actually gave her credit. So what Rebecca Lyons said in the study, and I loved it, is she said, where your burden and your talent collide, there you'll find your calling. So what has God laid upon your heart? What thing has he burdened you about? And then where are your talents? Right? What, what talent do you have? And where those two things meet up, there is where you find your calling. And so now here you've got these seven men that are listed out that have been appointed to this work have been proposed and what you'll find is something very interesting about their names and that is out of the seven not one single name Hebrew name they are all Greek names why because they've got a heart for these ladies 
these ladies would have been on their mind. They would have understood them. They would have got the significance of the need to take care of them. And so they had a heart for this particular ministry. Now, I have sat through lots of missionaries that will come into churches and they'll speak about their mission. Uh, let's say they've got a, a mission that's going over to Africa and helping those people over there. And, and they'll give a wonderful speech, but then invariably, as people will leave, they'll, go, they'll say, man, God is so good. That is an amazing mission. I am just glad God didn't call me to go to Africa. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad he called them and he didn't call me because, I mean, let's think about it, the, the heat and the bugs, and dear Lord, the scorpions. I mean, who could deal with African scorpions? That, that is so not my calling. And you know what? The reality is, it's probably not your calling because you, you are opposed to all these things. God probably didn't call you there because here's the reality. If he called you to go to Africa, you know you, what you would begin to love? Scorpions. You, you would begun, begin to understand and know every fact possible about scorpions. You would probably collect scorpions. You would probably have charts in your house about scorpions. You would become such a lover of on your iPod would be greatest hits of the scorpions, right? You would be, here I am, rock me like a hurricane, every time you go to work out because the scorpions would be the thing that's on your mind. But you see, this is how God works, he puts something on your heart, and then the next thing you know, you begin to fall in love uh, with that thing. And so as I think about my own uh, call to ministry, what the Lord told me in a very powerful way, I've told many of you this, but the Holy Spirit, you know, knocked me out there that day in my camper and just put me on the ground. But what he told me as I was laying there was, feed my sheep. I was given a very specific uh, ministry to go and feed sheep and, and to which I said yes Lord I absolutely will do that anywhere you tell me to go I will go and feed whatever sheep that you bring forth and so he, he gave me this ministry I then turned around and shared that information with my pastor my mentor like I think I've been called into ministry this is what God said he's like oh that's awesome I'm like what should I do next you know what you should do is the pond really needs to be weed whacked Somebody needs to go out there to the Parkland Chapel Pond because it's all grown up in weeds, and they need to go and weed whack the pond. And so your first thing you should go and do in ministry is weed eat. I'm like, that's not the kind of ministry I was thinking of. I didn't know I had a weed whacking ministry. What I found was hours upon hours with my AirPods in, getting the chance to listen to the Word of God while I weed whacked like nobody's business. I began to love whacking the weeds at Parkland Chapel. And one week, it was particularly hot, and I'm sweating out there, and I go inside the church building for a drink, and I've got a drink of water, and it's just talking to pastor, and, and he asked me how it was going, what the Lord had been laying on my heart, and I said, I'm, I'm excited what God's got next, but I've told him already, I'll go anywhere you call me. I said, but I'm so afraid to go back to Charleston, Illinois. Like, of all the places I want to go, I'm like, Lord, I'll go anywhere, but don't send me to Charleston. Like, I don't want to go sit in front of people that I know or that might know me. Like, of all people I could share in front of, that's the last place I want to be. And what he shared with me, and I won't forget this, he said that if God calls you, he'll give you a heart for them. And what transpired over the next several years is a desire, a move upon my heart to be a part of Charleston, Illinois. And now here I am, there is no place I'd rather be. Even on a day where the rain is pouring down, and who knows, the basement's probably flooded, the kids are probably swimming downstairs. They're having a great time. Welcome back to Charleston, Illinois. But, but what I found, even yesterday, thinking about this when we enjoyed homecoming and a football game and spending time with friends, it's that God put this place on our hearts, <laughs> that this is the place where to minister. And so be encouraged in that if God is moving on your heart in some way. Now then, verse 6 Speaking of these men, uh, they were set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now notice with me the pattern. When they had prayed, they laid hands on them. This should be uh, bullet point number one. Anytime leadership is chosen, it first needs to be bathed in prayer. That we should not ever enter into leadership as individuals or be asked into leadership until first the, they have been prayed over well before the laying on of hands 
And far too often we get excited about picking leaders and laying hands on, but there hasn't been enough time spent in prayer, and then mistakes take place. And so for these men here, the apostles prayed over them, and then they laid hands on them. And then verse 7, And then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests were obedient to the faith. And so isn't it amazing? As the word of God spreads, as the teaching of the word spreads, what happens is disciples are made. Notice what they say there. As the word spreads, disciples are made. Never one mention of converts. <laughs> Not called church to go out, therefore, and make converts of all men, but go, therefore, and make disciples of all men. Those men and women who would be disciples of Jesus Christ. And what's the root word in disciple but discipline? Discipline in the things, the teachings of Jesus. And so by this, um, healthy sheep, and don't you know that healthy sheep are actually what go and reproduce? So by being fed a steady diet of the word of God, they actually grew and became more healthy, and then they were able to go and reproduce other sheep. Sick sheep do not reproduce. Healthy sheep do. And so here we see that the sheep are beginning to reproduce, and they're building other disciples in the word of God, and here are people that are, are able to be healthy and sheep that are at peace, not because they're ruled by the law of God, but because God actually resides in their heart. That the message of Christ is that he wants to come and dwell in you, so the law is no longer this thing that's imposed upon you, but now you begin to get to do this Christian life. That we begin to get to go out and actually fulfill the law from the inside out, not the outside in. And there's probably no group that would understand this more and better than the priests, right? Here are a group of people who are called by Levites to serve in the holy temple by God. Their whole life was all about the law, the rules, the regulations. And the problem is when our life is all ruled by rules and regulations is that it's all based upon how much willpower do I have to fulfill it. Do I have enough willpower to actually be able to do this thing and carry this out? And while I would like to say that I have that kind of willpower, the reality is I do not. I'm, I'm more amazed by how little willpower I actually have every single day. That if it's not Christ living in us, we're not able to go and fulfill these things. And the priests would have known and understood this. In fact, what they knew from their priesthood is uh, under the law, they had no access under the law to serve in the temple, even to be a priest, a very select small group to serve within the holy temple, they could not have access into the holy of holies. It was an area separated by a curtain 60 feet wide, 30 feet tall, 10 inches thick. That's some kind of curtain that was going on right there. They were not allowed to set foot into the holy of holies except for one day of the year. Yom Kippur, the, only the high priest was able to go in and make atonement for the people. So then what happens if you're a priest there in the temple and Good Friday takes place <laughs> and the veil is torn, not from bottom to top like a man would do top to bottom like God himself did it. It would cause you to ask a bunch of questions, which is precisely why as Paul was speaking there to the Ephesian church and writing in his letter, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, he says this about the wall of separation if I can find Ephesians. I lost Ephesians, everybody. Hang on. Galatians, Ephesians. There we go. Chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the war that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And he, Jesus, might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity." putting an end to the war by removing the middle wall of separation. That's precisely what was done through the cross, through the work of Jesus Christ. 
And so now here the priests are beginning to see this, and what happened is they realize now we have access where we no longer had access. We, you and I, because Christ now dwells in our temple, in us, we have access not only to God, but to be able to, what Hebrews says, come boldly to the throne of grace. We get to come busting on in God, in his uh, throne, and say, Dad, I need help. Papa, I need you in this place. And never before did they have that kind of access. So this is the thing that the priests begin to see there in verse 7, and they became obedient to the faith. Then verse 8, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And so now in our story, we come back to Stephen, one of these men that was called to be a, a servant to these widows. And what we see is Stephen, full of faith and power, is now doing great wonders and signs among the people. But here's a guy that was just called to be a table waiter, not only a table waiter, but to the lowest of the low in society. Stephen was called to wait tables for the widows. No one would have given any respect or time to a widow, and, and here he is. This is the task that the Lord has called him into. But what Stephen was is he was faithful in a few things. Therefore, he was given more things. Precisely what Jesus was addressing in Matthew 25, or the parable of the talents, he says in verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. Now I'm going to make you ruler over many things. This is what's happening in Stephen's life. He's able to do the very same things the apostles were able to do, all because he was willing to be faithful as a server of tables to these widows. Now, what are some characteristics then of Stephen? What makes him so special, you might ask? Well, a few things to note. Very he was, we're told, full of the Holy Spirit. He had been filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and the reality is, if we are not full of the Holy Spirit for anything you feel like the Lord has called you to do, if he is not the one driving it, you will wear your bottom out. That's the reality. That's what Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, when he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. What has tripped you up? What's bewitched you for the very thing that God has started in the spirit, you try to finish it in the flesh? God began this good work in his spirit, and now in your own flesh, in your own strength, you're trying to finish it. And what Paul says is that's foolishness. And so for Stephen to carry out any task, or anyone for that matter to carry out any task, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, how do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? I'm so glad you, it's incredibly complicated. It goes like this. Ask. What Jesus says in Luke 11 is that for anyone who wants the Holy Spirit, all you need to do is ask. And like a good father, he's going to give it to you. He's going to give you as much of the Holy Spirit as you want, as you can take. And, and let me tell you, if you've never had a run-in with the Holy Spirit, one of the best metaphors I've ever heard is a run-in with the Holy Spirit is like getting hit by a fruit truck. If you survive the impact, it's the sweetest experience you'll ever have. Like, that's a run-in with his Holy Spirit. And so, here, we, all we have to do is ask to have this quality in our lives. The second thing we notice for Stephen is, in that same verse, he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He had wisdom in his life. And Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom that the fear of the Lord is actually the place where all wisdom starts. Now, does that mean we're to be terrified of God all the time? No. But it does mean we need to have a healthy respect, an appreciation, a reverence for him. The fear of the Lord, the best description I've heard, is it's like uh, we were just in Florida a couple weeks ago, standing there along the shores of the Redneck Riviera that is destined. As you're standing there looking out of, over the Gulf of Mexico, you can be in all beautiful. It's magnificent. But then we place you out in the middle of it with a life raft. Now you understand the fear of the Lord, right? There's a kind of power there that, that is hard to understand until you are in the middle of the fear of the Lord, the middle of the ocean. And so it, it's, it's a parallel there. And now so oftentimes what we find is people tend to be on one side or the other. 
It's either the side where uh, Jesus is my homeboy. That's the crowd, lots of people. He's my buddy. He's my pal. He's my homie. I just want to hang out with Jesus. And that's all fine and good. He wants to be your friend. He wants to come alongside and have a relationship with you. But if you don't have a proper fear of him, there is no respect. There's no honor. There's no majesty to it. And so the combination of the two is really what the Lord wants to build in our life. So for Stephen, he has wisdom because he would have had a proper fear, understanding of the Lord. But lastly, we see that he was a man of faith there in verse, uh, I think it's verse 5. Stephen, a man full of faith. And then skipping down to verse 8, Stephen, full of faith. And so two different times it's mentioned that he was full of faith. How do we know he was full of faith, though? Because he was faithful. He was full of faith because he was faithful in the thing that he was called to do. He was called to be a table server, and so he was faithful, which made him a man of faith. James chapter 2, and this is what James states. This one's always popular. Now, verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, if there's no feet to your faith, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, is what James states. Now, that does not mean that we have a works-based faith. What James is saying is we have faith-based works. Our works start from our faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one that makes it possible for us to go out and do things, but if we do nothing, then our faith isn't on display and so for Stephen, he is able to go out and do things because he is willing to put himself down. He's willing to take a back seat. He's willing to do what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, lose his life so that he can save it. It wasn't a glorious or a glamorous job to serve tables, but he was willing to put himself on the back burner to lose his life so that he could actually save his life and have eternal life. It's a beautiful concept. And so we see these abilities that Stephen has. You may wonder, what ability do I actually have at all? I, I don't know. This all sounds talking about talents and abilities. I don't have any talent and ability. So thanks so much for sharing that, preacher. But I don't have any of these things. Here are the three abilities, though, that I want you to, to write down or understand or just record in your mind. Uh, the first ability that Stephen had was availability. I used to love to watch the NFL draft. This was before kids, before I got tired of my wife complaining about watching things like the NFL draft. Uh, she doesn't understand it, but I love uh, numbers and orders and stats. It's, it's awesome if you're a guy. I mean, it's really great. Sorry, ladies. You, some of you might enjoy it, but for us, it's awesome. Uh, so I, my favorite commentator, though, was Hermes. He was the old Jets football coach. He's now at Arizona State. For any of you football fanatics, there's a little tidbit for you. Enjoy that. But Herm Edwards, in speaking of the NFL draft, he was talking about a particular prospect that was coming up, and he said, this man has the greatest ability you need as a football player, availability. Because the reality was, if you're not available to get yourself out on the football field, it don't matter how talented you are, you've got to have availability before you have any other abilities to actually work, and the same is true with the Lord. We have to make ourselves available in order to be used by him. And so for Stephen, he made himself available to be used by God. The next ability he had was flexibility. He flexible with what the Lord called him into. Now, the founder of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, loved to say, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Right? Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be be broken. And so many times we get ourselves rigid and we say, this is what I do and I don't do this thing over here. This is my area. I only do this. Prepare to be broken <laughs> because you're not willing to be flexible with what the Lord is calling you into. And so for Stephen, no doubt, he didn't have table waiting probably high on his list of things he was wanting to do for ministry, but he was flexible with what the Lord called him into. So as I was called into ministry in, in, you know, in my illustrious weed-whacking career, the next step for me in ministry was uh, going and beginning to teach the Bible. And so my pastor said, here's the two areas you should go and teach. Uh, children's church 
and in the nursing homes. <laughs> and so those were my next two callings in ministry. I was terrible at children's church, by the way. Angela did a great job. I would just take the kids to the bathroom and sneak off and go get a cup of coffee while I waited for them to come. I wasn't even great at watching them. So children's church kind of quickly became out for me. But then the nursing homes, we would go every Sunday afternoon to the illustrious Farmington Manor on the screen for you and get to my friend Brian Woodson and I. He was a pastor. We would go on Sunday afternoons uh, after lunch and after medications were given to the Farmington Manor to speak to the residents of the convalescent home. What a great time to get to go and speak and preach the word of God to these wonderful people. I mean, they were all about ready to pass out. So if I just want to share this with you. If at any point in time you think I am deterred in a message or insulted by you falling asleep, you got nothing on the residents of Farmington Manor. You can't even fall that kind of asleep. So it didn't stop me. It didn't shut me down. In fact, there was one, one gentleman, Brother Charles, he would fall so hard asleep, totally slumped over in his chair most weeks like this. We'd have to shake him a couple times to make sure he didn't die on us. Like, I think I might have killed him. We'd shake him, and he would pop back up, and he'd go, praise the Lord, brother, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm like, cool, he's still alive. Okay, Brother Charles is with us. But the point was... You begin to be flexible with what God calls you into. And the reality was it was the best place I could have taught. Those people loved to hear from me. I began to love them and, and still to get to see their, their beautiful faces, whether it was Charles who was half asleep or, or Norma or Martha or Mary or Ed. Any of those people, uh, they loved to just have the interaction. And so I could have said any crazy thing scripturally that they hear from me. And so it gave an opportunity to actually grow in teaching. And all that goes to the third uh, characteristic Stephen had, the third ability, and that was humility. He was willing to be humbled in his service. And that is so vitally important for us because out of this, out of this willingness to be humble in service, it actually resulted in tremendous power. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, that the meek will inherit the earth. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is power under control. You understand if Christ dwells in you, you have the creator of the universe living inside you. All power is actually at your fingertips. The question is, are we going to use it to help people? Or are we going to try to abuse it? And so for Stephen, none of these things were actually beneath him. And what you're going to find is next week, He's going to give the next great evangelical message to this whole group of haters that are coming up against him. This man, this table waiter, is going to give such an evangelical message that one person that's there in attendance is a guy that would later become known as the Apostle Paul. And if you look at any of Paul's messages that he gives, he gives the exact outline of Stephen the martyr through every one of his messages powerful he actually was because he allowed himself to be humbled now verse 9 before we run out of time uh, what we read is then there arose some from what is called uh, the synagogue of the freedmen Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia disputing with Stephen and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so Stephen is now receiving a challenge against this local synagogue. They come up against Stephen and they make claims about because at first they began to just argue with him. They wanted to debate scripture with Stephen. And what they found was they could not resist his wisdom. That's what it says there in verse 10. They were not able to resist his wisdom and the Holy Spirit. They had no answer for this whatsoever. And I want you to understand that when it comes to sharing your faith or talking about Scripture, debating Scripture, if you want to call it that, it's that you cannot resist the wisdom of God's Word. That what Isaiah says in Isaiah 118 is that we have a reasonable faith. Think about how reasonable this gospel message is, that, that God, creator of all things, created us, relationship with us. We rejected the relationship because we wanted to do it our own way, and we brought about a sin and death upon ourselves, separation from God for all of eternity. 
But God, so loving us and wanting to have a relationship with us, sent himself to us to actually die on our behalf so that we can enter back into a relationship with him through his son and through his Holy Spirit. And so in doing so, we now have access. We have the ability to have eternal life because of his love and his sacrifice. And the only thing he has for us is that we believe in him. Does it get any more reasonable than that? It doesn't at all. And so here what we see is Isaiah even said it in the Old Testament, 700 years before Christ was born, come let us reason together, says the Lord, that though your sins are scarlet, they shall be clean. And though you are scarlet, or you are stained in crimson, I will make you as white as wool. This is his promise to actually cleanse us from hundreds of years before Christ came on the scene. And so it's a reasonable faith. They weren't able to come up against Stephen because he was so reasonable. And so instead what they had to do was twist things and bring up uh, false claims. Verse 12, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came on him and seized him and brought him to the council. And they, uh, they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, speaking of the temple. And the law, for we have heard him saying that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat on the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as a face of an angel. And so they come up against Stephen, and they've got all these false claims against him. In fact, they want to claim this uh, preaching of the destruction of the temple, which do you understand Stephen probably did actually say that? You know why? Because Jesus said that. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it back up again. He was speaking of his own body. But what these men did was they twisted the scripture. That was their favorite hair metal band, twisted scripture, right? You've probably ran into lots of Christians like that. They love to twist scripture or non-believers. They'll take our words, and they'll want to twist them around and use them in an improper way. And so they come up against Stephen, and yet his reaction was to stand there with the face of an angel. I think about that, and it's marvelous. I I wonder how often uh, my reactions look like that. You see, for me, I desire for my actions to be like what uh, Paul lays out to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He's telling him, as a leader of the church, as a pastor, you need to be blameless and above reproach. You need to have a good reputation among men. I I desire that in my life. I want to be blameless, above reproach, have a good reputation in the community. And yet, what you find is, more often than not, while you want to be judged by your actions... You and I are judged by our reactions. And unfortunately, so often, I will admit to you, my reactions do not line up with what my actions are. I desire to act in this certain way, yet when the pressure comes and the questions come, I react in a far different way. I react quickly and in anger without thinking things all the way through. But the The root of the problem, the root of my reaction is where my eyes are focused. When my eyes are so focused down here and on the circumstances, I'm reacting to what I see all around me. This is why, as Paul writes to the Colossians, he gives this word of encouragement. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, Sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind above, not on the things of this earth. For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. Here's the reality about your circumstance. If you believe in Christ, you're in Christ for all of eternity with God. Whatever your circumstance is, it's only temporary. You're actually positioned with him at the right hand of the Father. And what Paul is telling the Colossian church is, look up, eyes up, look to heaven. Remember where you're actually headed to. The worst thing this world could throw at you is is to kill you. I mean, that's the worst thing they can do. And here's the reality of that. You're going to heaven for all of eternity. It's not so bad. 
it's a pretty good deal. And so his encouragement is to reflect what you focus your eyes upon. What C.H. Spurgeon uh, put it like this. It's way better than anything I would say. He said, when you teach on heaven, you should have a glow on your face, a gleam in your eye, and a smile on your lips. And when you teach about hell, your regular face will do just fine. (laughs) How true, though. When we speak to people about the things of heaven, does it look like a gleam in your eye? A smile upon your face. Really reflecting what the Father is showing you daily that this thing, the worst it can throw at you, is at best temporary. So the question for us is, do we desire to reflect Jesus? Do we desire to reflect a life that's been resurrected, that's been freed, that's been forgiven of anything this world wants to throw our way? If you do, eyes up. Father, thank you, and we praise you for your word. We thank you for the life of Stephen, who we're going to get to study next week as well. And Lord, thank you for the reminder of the abilities you've given us, the ability to make ourselves available and flexible and humble so that we can have the opportunity to be a servant. So many times when we have hard things happening in our life we just want to throw in the towel it's too hard Lord depression sets in especially as we're headed into the winter season and yet what you tell us is don't throw in the towel but pick the towel up and start washing feet I'm amazed at how often Lord that when I get my eyes focused on others and helping them that the depression goes away and the hard gets easier Lord remind us of that in this week. Thank you so much for the promises that are contained here in your word. And we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Please stand.
to idols, I'll stand strong and worship you. If it puts me in the fire, I rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings, I hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, I'll be crucified by you. Death is just the doorway into resurrection life. If I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you rise. When you return in glory, all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing and my song will be the same. Christ be magnified, let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified in the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. And the church says, Thank you guys so much for coming out this week. I'll be praying for you guys. Have a great week. I do have to apologize. I do think I compared you to scorpions, so sorry about that. That was uh, unintentional and only metaphorical, so hopefully you got it. Um, But so very thankful for you guys. I want to encourage you that as you think about ministry, understand this. Each and every one of you is called to ministry. As a believer in Christ, you are called to minister to someone. It may not look like this or sitting on a swivel stool, uh, but it it is a call to ministry. So be praying for the Lord to open your eyes to that and then the Holy Spirit to give you the power to do the thing that he called you to do. God bless you guys. If you need any prayer, I'm going to be up here. Thank you.